This episode of the Aquarius Podcast is sponsored by Aquarium Co-op. Corey and the team at Aquarium Co-op have redefined the tropical fish and plant buying experience. Aquarium Co-op provides incredibly healthy fish, gorgeous plants, and top quality lights, food, and accessories at competitive prices. So how do I know this? Well, I'm fortunate enough to call them my local fish store where I've purchased many of the aforementioned items. Now you may not live in the greater Seattle area, but that shouldn't stop you from checking them out. Pay close attention. Listeners of this podcast can get 5% off AquariumCoop.com orders by using the promo code Aquarist5 at checkout. One more time, that promo code is Aquarist5. And if their retail operation wasn't enough, they bring exceptional video content through the Aquarium Co-op YouTube channel. I encourage you to check out the instructional how-to, travel, and fish room tour videos. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Lastly, be sure to share the Aquarius podcast with your fish nerd friends. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Wednesday, September 12th, 2018. My guest today is Dean Tweedell. Dean is a lifelong hobbyist and a fellow member of the Greater Seattle Aquarium Society. Dean has a lifetime of breeding fish and has been given the nickname Master Breeder. So Dean, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Great, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, if the audio sounds a little bit different, full uh, disclaimer up front, we're actually in Dean's home, which is in the greater Seattle area. Um, So I'm very privileged and honored to be uh, a guest in your home, Dean, and to be able to interview you here. You bet. You bet. All right, so so Dean, uh, some people may know you from some of Corey's aquarium co-op videos, where you know the master breeder Dean has been featured, uh, fish room tours, several fish room tours of your incredibly impressive, um, albeit small but efficient, um, you know, very very well thought out, methodical fish room that you have, where you are just you know producing tremendous quality, high volume number of, of fish of a, of a select species in a very limited space. Um, which most of us, if given that same space, would not be <laughs> nearly as successful. Um, so it's it, it's it's awesome to have you on. And like I said, I think a, a lot of people out there will probably know you from that. And if they haven't, um, I'll throw in some links so sure. in the show notes so people can go back and check out how impressive your fish room is and, and just how beautiful the fish are that you breed. So um, with all that being said, you didn't wake up one day with all that knowledge, right, and all that know-how. So where, where, yeah. did, where does your story, like, let's go way back in the time machine. Um, what is your first memory of fish keeping? Well, way, 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 way back, um, my very first fish were four guppies. Um, a woman down the street, actually it was my mom's best friend, uh, I was picking weeds out of her garden. And we would usually use uh, three-pound coffee cans or five-gallon buckets. And you would get paid by the coffee can or bucket full of weeds, right? So I had been there, you know, for three or four hours doing this, and I wanted my payment. And then so I go in, and she gives me a drink of water, and she has a a glass bowl of guppies on the table. I'm like, those are cool. And she says, well, you know, maybe you could take some of those for payment. Knowing that my family, we had nothing to keep them in, right? So we lived down the street. So I took home four guppies, two males, two females. Uh, did not know anything about fish at that point. And I kept them in the toilet bowl. Literally, in the toilet bowl. We had two bathrooms. Every time I heard, heard the toilet flush, I would freak out because I had taped over the door and everything that no one could go in there. Uh, I had to keep them in the toilet bowl for the first night and half of the next day while we figured out what we were going to put them in. Uh, Didn't have any food. Um, I fed them cracker crumbs and breadcrumbs. And eventually we got a bowl 
And then, of course, with guppies, you know what happens. You get babies. And then you get more babies. And eventually they outgrow the bull. And, you know, that led to a tank. And, you know, from there, that was where I started in the hobby. And at what age were you during that time? I believe at that time I was seven years old. Okay, and not incredibly germane, but was that, was that still in the Seattle area? Or I guess, are you born and raised here? I, I actually uh, was not born here. I was born in Missouri, but I moved here when I was five. And I've been here ever since. Okay. So, and I grew up primarily in a suburb called Issaquah. Okay. So, yeah, so this was in Issaquah. Um, and, you know, I think this was long before chlorine and chloramine was... So I didn't even have any water conditioners. and mm-hmm. I mean, I literally knew nothing about fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't have the internet and all of that back then either. So what you had to rely on is going to the library. And that's what I did. I started every fish book in the library I would get and, you know, read it, take it back, then go get it again and read it again. And, and at that time, you know, what, maybe there might have only been a, a couple dozen books out that, that were in libraries. So, and what do you recall of the, the kind of the species selection of what you kept back then? And I guess how many tanks do you, you know, roughly as you, as you're getting older, you know, did your parents allow you to keep in the house or in the basement or wherever it is they let you have them? Well, um, okay. From, from the first guppies, we ended up with a 10 gallon tank and that's all we ever had in that house. And then we moved, um, again in Issaquah, I moved like four or five times in it while in Issaquah, we moved to another house where, um, still just had the one tank. Uh, and then we moved to another house where, we had what was commonly called a rec room, short for recreational room. And in that room, we had ping pong table, pool table, and stereo. You know, the stereo, the, the TV wasn't out there. It was still a 13-inch black and white TV was all we had at that time. And there was one wall on the rec room. Um, and by that time, I had been to various pet shops. And there used to be a shop in downtown Bellevue called Safari Pet Shop where all of the tanks were front only, behind paneling. So it was like little pictures. And if you wanted to buy fish from them, they would go behind and net from behind. And I thought that was really cool. And by this time I was, I don't know, 12, 13, that sort of age. And I was fascinated with that, looking at just the picture, not seeing everything else. So there was some old paneling um, that we had taken off the walls in one place. And I basically built myself a stand that I could do that on that wall. And just, and it was for, it was literally for two 10 gallon tanks. And I thought that was really cool. And this was at 12 years old. Yes. So our 12 year olds nowadays could probably do that in Minecraft, but not in actual, not in, right. <laughs> not in real life. I mean, so I nice. grew up, I grew up working a lot with my dad on every project we did. We, you did yourself, you know, it was, I mean, you didn't hire people to do it cause you couldn't afford to pay them. So we did ourselves, whether it was indoors, outdoors, uh, construction. So, you know, I pretty much learned all about electrical wiring, plumbing and building. And, and literally that thing was held together with nails, not screws, nails. Uh, and it was, you know, by, we were talking earlier about stands by today's standards, 
It was pretty rickety. <laughs> but it worked, you know. And, uh, I mean, I had two doors on the bottom. Unbeknownst to my parents, later there was two more 10-gallon tanks under there. I had figured out how to wire some lights under there and stuff like that. Uh, but I became fascinated at age 13 with discus. Uh, I had seen, and, and then all you could find in the shops were brown and what they called blue discus. Pretty much the same, you know, visually, except for one had a little bit more blue on it. Um, so that led to a paper route. What was the price point of the discus like relative to the price of a discus now, right? Like you go into a pet store, you're probably getting a silver dollar size discus right. for 30 30 to 60, depending 30 on... 30 to 60, yeah. right? Yep. So obviously inflation, but are they relatively as expensive then or were they more expensive back then? I would say... Okay, so back then you were buying nickel and quarter size discus. You weren't buying the bigger discus mm -hmm. that they are now. Now it's very popular to sell them bigger. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's because more selection has happened. Maybe that's because there's more deaths that have happened in raising them. But you could buy a nickel-sized discus for $5. Uh, now, you fast-forward, what, 40 years? They were probably more expensive back then. Okay. Yeah. Or 50 years, however many years that is. It's a lot of years. <laughs> um, so, you know, but, but I became fascinated with them. And, there, and I'd also seen, uh, and maybe that's because of the information wanting to gather, um, we had or I should say my dad had subscribed to National Geographic forever. So there was an issue that was printed, I believe in 1960, about these fish that ate from the side of their parents, right? And I would go through the old National Geographic looking for fish articles, and I came across that, and I saw them at the, within probably the same month at one of the fish stores, or pet store. There was no specialty fish stores, they were all pet stores back then. Um, and they were all mom and pops. This was, you know, well before any of the big box stores. And I'm like, okay, I want those. And that gets back to the paper route. So I'd have a paper route to earn money uh, and ended up getting a 29-gallon tank. And I thought this is like a monster tank, right? Because compared to a 10 or a fishbowl... Oh, yeah, 29. You're, it's yeah. a big size tank, yeah. right? And I, I had an old dresser that we put it on and, you know, the whole under gravel filter, some plants, uh, incandescent lights. That's all that you could buy. And I got four discus. You know, that was pretty much six months of delivering papers, mm -hmm. you know. And, of course... They didn't all survive, you know. I mean, we knew nothing about them um, other than what you'd read or what the people at the store told you. Um, that had to have been heartbreaking to, to see yeah, one of those discs just at to that see price one die. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, but, you know, I knew there was more and, and I wasn't quick to give up. So I got four more. So now I had five. And eventually I grew three of them to what would you like four inches. So mm -hmm. 
kind of by our terms, that would be sub-adult, mm-hmm. but they were breeder size. And when I was 13, I spawned discus for the first time. That is awesome. And, uh, you know, the first couple spawns didn't work, but eventually they did. And then, of course, the guppies kind of started going to the side because I needed those tanks to put the little baby discus in. Um, and, and then I quickly learned that, hey, the stores will buy these from you, but they won't pay you. They buy them in credit. And then that opened the door to getting a lot of different fish, a lot of tetras. Um, I tried just about everything, you know, at that point because, and tanks multiplied. So at 13 years old, breeding discus in a 29 gallon with under gravel filters, which today people would scoff at you and, and, you know, call the, call the fish police on you for saying that you could do, do you recall, I mean, were you doing weekly water changes? Like, was that even, I was doing, I would say more like monthly water changes. Uh, Water changes weren't really even talked about back then. I mean, even if you went to the store, they wouldn't say, oh, you got to change your water. You know, people would do it when the water turned green or ugly, you know. And and there wasn't a lot written about water changes in any literature. It was like, you know, but I did run into other Aquarius. Um, in Issaquah, I found, and I guess I can say this, the guy that ran the funeral home had a basement full of tropical fish. That's almost kind of creepy. Hey, mom, I'm going to go to I know, the, uh, I know. Going to like the undertaker's house. We're going to go look at some fish. It was. I would, uh, and he lived across town from me. So, you know, you'd ride your bike across town and he would also sell fish. He had kind of a home-based business out of it. And, um, and I would go over there and, you know, pester him for hours. And, and he was the first one that actually said, well, you know, you, to do the consistent water changes. And that's when I started learning that part of it. Oh, that's um, awesome. But, but before that, and also gravel vacuuming. Never heard of, right? I mean, you just change the water, and I'm sure the gravel will get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier and dirtier until it's plugged up. I'm hoping all my plants just take care of that. So I, don't, <laughs> I know. Well, exactly. There's too many plants there. I can't gravel right. back, right? Right. So, so then let's fast forward a little bit. When, when do you get, like, your first legit fish room where you know you you are an operation and you are turning fish out of it okay the very first one was uh my wife and i had been looking at no actually at that time she was my girlfriend so my girlfriend and i were looking at a place to live and we were just out of college uh, and literally just out of college. And this is back when Seattle was affordable, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, however, we ended up in Everett. <laughs> so Even more affordable. Rent to own was a popular plan back then. So you rent a place for six months, and that'll give you a down payment to own. So we went to one of these rent to own places, and we, and we wanted to know what we could own. And they said, well, why don't you drive to, they, they gave us some addresses of where we could go, and so we, it was a Saturday, we drove up to a place in Everett, and it was a condo that you could buy with this down payment. Two-bedroom condo, uh, one floor, so not a, not a upstairs, but, and a one-car garage. And 
the realtor there that was showing it was very smart. She said, why don't you guys just put in an offer and forget about renting? With zero down, and we, we both had jobs out of college, so we did. We put in an offer, and it was accepted. So that was our first place to co-mingle, co-live. Um, and it had a one-car garage that was deep enough and I put a wall across and separated about six feet of space. One wall had the washing machine and dryer the, and a hot water heater. And the other wall, I was able to put fish tanks up. And it was only discus at that time. <clears throat> and um, I, so I started breeding and selling discus. I had, I think, maybe I put tanks above the washer and dryer also. I think I had maybe 10 or 12 tanks in that space. Uh, from 29s to, no, I'm, I had 20s, 29s, and I think I had 155. Um, and I started just, any discus I could get hands on that I wanted to breed, I would buy them, get them to breed, and then I would sell the babies. I wasn't shipping babies at that point. They were just going back to stores. Uh, so that was the very first, if you want to call it a fish room. And that's probably in something that's like, what, 60 square feet of, of space? It was basically probably six by 10 feet of space, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And so it, so no auto water chain system, I'm guessing? No, no, no. You're just doing that buckets into the sink or hoses into the, into the sink? Okay. And there was no sink. So it was buckets and then dump them down the toilet or the, or the bathtub, mm -hmm. whichever, you know. So there's a lot of buckets. Mm-hmm. What were some of your first lessons learned of, of setting up that fish room or maybe your evolution as a discus breeder? Um, I learned a lot more about keeping the water, the water changing. It became more and more important, as, especially as the tanks filled with babies. Uh, you know, losing tanks full of babies was just heartbreaking. And, and it was almost always led back to water quality. It wasn't that they weren't eating. Uh, and, you know, you learn that that's the hard way to learn it. Um, Fortunately, I was became friends with a couple other really successful discus breeders, and they would, oh, you know, change more water, change more water. And then I also did learn that that's when I first learned that our Northwest water is so good for fish. Uh, and you can go any direction with it. Because when, when you're starting with water that is soft and let's just call it neutral, you could pretty much turn it into anything you want. If you want to do African cichlids, you could do African cichlids by adding buffers. Um, if you wanted to do um, acid-loving fish, you could let that water acidify really easy. So I learned a lot about water in that fish room. Um, and that led to the next fish room, which was probably the biggest and best that I've ever had so far. Yeah, so let's go straight into what, so, what is that? So back then I was in construction. I worked and I was partners with a builder. And um, we had a cabinet shop along with our construction company. And I kind of ran the cabinet shop as well as construction sites for him. I'd worked for him for probably six years at this time. And there was a couple days, one week, where I was late, like three days in a row. And it was all revolving around traffic. 
uh, traffic accidents or whatever. And, um, you know, I came in the third day I was late and I was just in a bad mood. I said, you know, I'm just so tired of living so far away. Because uh, cause our construction sites were pretty much in King County and I was living in Snohomish County. Mm -hmm. And... Which with no traffic, that's maybe a 30-minute drive. Right. But once you, once you, add, once on you traffic, add traffic, it could be an hour and a half. Yeah, so we basically yeah. have Highway 5 that goes north-south. Right. And then right. Puget Sound is on your west. You've got mountains and on, valley on your, on on your east. east. So we're, we are very constricted, and in the, in the traffic now is terrible. And I can imagine back then it still wasn't the best. It wasn't the best. It, it was nowhere near as bad as it is now. But, you know, when you're not counting on an accident, you know. So anyway, so... He had found these two building lots, one across the street from each other, at a really, really good price. And he said, well, he said, I'll tell you what, if you want to manage these two sites, um, build one house for sale, build one for you guys, you could build it at cost. And so, of course, I went home that night and talked to, she was still my girlfriend at that time. Um, we were... Got to put a ring on it, Dean. What's going on? We man? we were were we engaged at that time? We were we were engaged. All right, so we there's were, a ring. We there's were, a ring on we it. We were engaged. Yeah. So by then we were engaged, and we fell in love with the idea of designing and building a house uh, that we could afford. So the next day we went to the bank. They said you have to save like nine hundred dollars a month for ten months. That's our down payment. Uh, and you will qualify. And so in that house, um, it was multi-level. It was a garage with uh, a living level above and then, or your, yeah, your living level and the bedroom level above. So it was basically three levels. And off the side of the garage, I was able to build a room about 20 feet by 16 feet. It was all underground, so there was no natural light, uh, but it had, it had water, it was insulated, it had a slab, and the walls um, into the crawl space could be insulated with as much insulation as I wanted. The hot water heater was right there, the, the furnace was right there, and I also had gas available. So that was gonna become my new fish room. Um, my wife didn't really understand that whole concept other than it was my room. And she understood that we could both park in the garage. That was what was important. So, um, so that became my next fish room. And uh, it, I mean, I've talked to you before about having the 12 feet of counter space. Mm -hmm. I had that. And I had a laundry sink. And I had floor drains. I mean, I had everything you wanted. You know? and, and how many tanks did you get in that space? Uh, well over a hundred. Wow. Um, I at, at one time I had uh, a lot of them were twenties because I was breeding discus still twenty breeders, or twenty talls. I mean, um, and then I had forty breeders. I had a, the stack of one eighties. There was one eighty over a one eighty. Um, I had tons of five gallons because I was also doing apistos. I had one rack that was all. It was like 18 five-gallon tanks with a pair of epistles in each, 
all producing young at the same time. And then on my counter, the back of the counter was completely lined with five gallon tanks, which were fry raising tanks. And that was my first iteration. Is that even a word? Iteration? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Of the quote drip system. Because I was dripping water in to constantly change water uh, in almost all of the tanks. I had drilled little holes, which now we would use bulkheads. Mm -hmm. Back then, I just forced vinyl tubing through it and let it expand back. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, I mean, that's that's some innovation right there. Yeah, I mean, you had to try. You know, I mean, you try everything. And, you know, there would be times with, you, you try stuff and it fails, but you move on from that. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's no there's no internet forums at this time, so you're there not was nothing. you're not on monster fish no, keepers no or <laughs> digital cameras. I mean, the, the sad part is, um, you know, most of the pictures of that room uh, were destroyed by water problems. Mm -hmm. Not in that room, but that we had in storage later when when we had some pipes break. Uh, so I don't really have hardly any pictures of that room left. Um, there is one picture of it in Dick Owe's book, but it's only one little corner of the mm -hmm. room. Um, so, but that room was, I mean, it was nine foot ceilings. I had tanks three tiers high, built all the racks. Um, and it worked. I would love to have that room now. How long were you in that room for uh, operating as fish room number two? Uh, 15 years. Um, and the first three were very frustrating. The last three were also frustrating. The middle three were, or the middle ones were great years. Mm -hmm. Um, I was going literally, and this is again, when you would, to ship fish, you went to the airport and it was all air freight. So it was airport to airport. I got to the point where I was driving to the airport three nights a week, late at night. Um, sometimes at two in the morning to be the last to drop off. So it'd go out on the first flight in the morning. Um, that was always the goal. And then I would still be getting up at six in the morning to go build someone else's house. Mm. So, and, and as far as the species selection, so just outside of this fish room, um, or maybe, maybe this fish room is where you, you know, you came across this, but you know, when I hear you talk about fish to breed you know you're very business minded in that right. you know you need to breed things that are going to sell right um it, it's not you, you know you can breed fish but if they're not going to sell and you're just going to hold on to them then right. you're just going to kind of amass a collection i guess so you know the discus thing like we you know you fell in love with the discus you got them to breed that you know does inherently the discus just have that mystique and that popularity right. to them so were there were there any kind of hard knocks that led you to to having this business savvy mindset when it came to species selection? Well, um, you know, now it's easy to talk about that now, but in hindsight, it's harder because now you can look at, I always say that if you're going to run a fish room, get a couple species that will always sell and they're going to take up at least 50% of your tank space and then play your, your other tank space is yours to play with. Right? So, uh, and I don't know whether, okay, falling into discus really young and, and was intrigued with that. In a way, that did make spawning some of the other fish really easy. Most of my fish have always been softwater fish because that was naturally what happened. But I did venture into some of the smaller um, 
Africans, uh, the pelvic chromus ones. Again, that's a soft water fish. Um, but I also did, um, uh, is it Julitochromus, the little mm -hmm. Julies? Um, daffodil cichlids, they became really popular, especially the yellow ones. Um, shell dwellers I did for quite a while. Um, but I would only dedicate a little bit of tank space to them because the other fish were easier for me to move. And maybe it's because I became known for them. Apistos, I could always sell or, or trade off the babies. Um, and, and then rams again. Rams was another one that I bred back then. And I was working, you know, I want to say working, but I was close friends with Dick Al back then. And, and we would trade fish back and forth. Uh, or he would get some in and he'd say, oh, you got to try these. I'm selling them like hotcakes here. And, um, you know, that might be the next trend that sells really good in Seattle. Um, angelfish, uh, you know, I was, back then I was kind of against mixing angelfish in discus room because I'd always heard horror stories about people that did it. So I never did it. Well, what would some of these horror stories be of just... Oh, angelfish will kill all of your discus because they're carrying diseases. Either, but they're still in separate tanks though. Yes. Yeah. But even a splash and, you know, and, and granted there, there was a time where there was what they called the discus or angelfish plague. And people would lose their whole fish room over the course of several months. Literally everything. Um, and they didn't know a cure for it. And they didn't know whether it was genetic, bacterial, or a virus or whatever. And so we, we feared that like the plague, you know. Um, I, I was also friends with another guy that that his dad was a dignitary in Thailand or yeah, I think it was Thailand. And so he could go and bring stuff back without having to deal with the customs. So he brought me some, at that time they were called pearl scale angels. And I had to go over there in the middle of the night cause he got back always in the middle of the night on a Sunday night. And I'm like, I don't know if I want those. They're cool because of the scaling pattern. He said, there's no one else in the United States that has them. So I decided I'd dedicate some tank space to them. And they ended up selling for a higher price than baby discus. Um, and, you know, I mean, so you're, I was, you always have to, I was always looking for something that would pay for the fish room whether it be the food, the medications, you know, um, I never really worried too much about the utility bills, but the rest of it, you know, mm -hmm. new tanks, new nets, whatever you needed. If you have something that'll pay for that, um, it just makes the rest of the hobby a lot easier. And that's only talking to people that really are, I mean, there's, cause there's hobbyists that only have two tanks and they're happy with that. Mm -hmm. Be happy with that because that's where you are. But if you're going to operate a fish room, you, you, you're going to want some return from that. Um, you know, whether it's store credit or selling stuff, you're, you're going to want something back. Um, I mean, fish food, especially some of the frozen food, can get quite expensive. But if you can trade for that, it makes it a lot easier to swallow. Mm -hmm. So through the years, 
how have you seen, um, I guess, the ease of being able to trade fish in, to sell fish to other hobbyists or back to the stores? Uh, how has that kind of changed throughout the years? And where, where do you think we are at this point? Well, okay, first off, we, we've got eBay. You've got Aquabid. So you, you have those options. Craigslist is really pop, popular. Um, there's other ones, you know, like OfferUp. I don't think there's used as much. So you have more outlets, plus you have the internet, which is almost free advertising. Not quite free, um, but almost free. Um, so I think getting the information out there that you have these fish is a lot easier. Uh, but at the same time, we've lost thousands of mom and pop stores. And I don't know about the rest of the country, but out here, I can't walk into a Petco or a PetSmart and say, hey, do you want to buy some of my fish? Because the answer is no. They're linked to their own wholesaler. They're not linked to hobbyists. So, um, you know, you, you have to find the privately owned stores um, that are willing to deal with you. And not all of them are. But... If you approach them at a non-busy time, when you can talk about what you have, maybe you take them a bag of sample fish for free. I've done that many times. Um, here, try these. Let me know. I'll come in in a couple of weeks and see if they worked out. Um, you know, you, you, you got to become their... Uh, I don't know the right word, but you, you got to kind of become their partner. In right, it. right. And, and don't be asking for more than what they can afford. You almost um, have to give a little bit more in the relationship, you right? Do. Because they, for, they, especially because at they're, first. Because yeah. they're bearing so much more of the risk, right? right? They are the ones running the store. They're the ones right. that practically have their life savings on the line. Right. You're just kind of a hobbyist that wants to, you know, cut right. your expenses on your electricity right. a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and there's some stores that will just outright pay you. There's other stores that say, well, you know, we can only do it for credit. And so you also have to decide, can I take credit? Do I want credit at that store? Um, uh, do I need the money? You know, what is it? You know, and so, uh, and you also have to understand that the pet business is a three-tiered price level. Um, you know, there's, there's fish. If you're selling to a wholesaler, that's one price. If you're selling to a retailer, that's another price. If you're selling to an individual, that's another price. And what I've done primarily now is I try not to sell to individuals because they can go to the stores that I'm selling to and get those fish. And if those stores know I'm selling to their customers also, that might not be a happy ending. You know, so I... Try not to sell to individuals. There's a few that, you know, if they have something that I want, maybe we trade. Mm -hmm. um, but it's easier to not. Mm -hmm. um, let, me, let me frame it another way, too. So if you, yep. if you had fish room number two right now, mm -hmm. today, would you be able to still move the same number of fish and the same volume today as you were back then? Is the appetite there? Um, yes, but it might be different species. I don't think I'd be able to move the same number of discus. Um, 
unless, well, first of all, back then, I could sell discus at a nickel size to a store. Uh, first off, you're not spending a lot of time raising those. It might only be, you know, two, three, maybe four months. Um, and even to get them to quarter size, you know, that was good. Um, so you could sell them to a store at a lower price. They could afford more of them. You could also ship them. They're easier to ship that size than big fish, uh, mainly because of the weight and the water weight, you know. Um, nowadays, those could, the small discus could be shipped by priority mail, probably. Uh, back then, it was all airport to airport. So I think the shipping part would be easier nowadays than back then. Um, but there's a lot more competition uh, with people selling the larger discus. That seems to be the more popular way to sell them. The smaller fish, the dwarf cichlids, I think that'd be a piece of cake um, now. And so you might be more diversified. Um, at the same time, it's harder to be diversified because your attention has to go in so many different directions with raising those. And they don't all raise the same. Angelfish, you will always sell them. Um, they're a popular fish uh, in, in every shop. Uh, and I found also, you know, you get a niche with the rams. Rams aren't always the easiest to breed, but they're, they always sell. So that's, you know, those are where you keep your bread and butter fish. But the rest, I think you diversify a little bit more. What is, what is a fish that you would want to experiment with? You know, call it a unicorn fish of yours. What's something that... Um, you know, if you had the tank space, you would want to breed, or maybe something that right now in your in your current fish room, which is you know on the smaller side compared to fish room number two, right. um, that you are planning on breeding. If you can unveil the curtain a little bit, so. Well, um, let's see. I've been more and more interested in plecos, especially the L number ones that are becoming what almost extinct in nature. So I've got, I don't know, three or four different varieties in the fish room growing out right now. Um, patience is key with those. You have to be willing to spend the time to grow them. Um, same with the Corydoras. I think I brought back three more species from Peru this summer. Um, hopefully I will end up with enough of those to get to breeder size. Um, and I think... I just said the word patience. You have to be patient if you're going to do something like that. Because um, a lot of us, or a lot of people, say, okay, I'm going to get those. They feed them like crazy. In fact, they might overfeed them. Uh, or they might feed them the wrong foods to get them to grow really fast. And then they end up with diseases. Uh, you have to be willing to take, especially the plecos. You know, I think you're in for a three-year process for any of those L-number plecos. And, and so, first of all, you have to start with enough where you're hoping to get males and females. Second of all, you've got to get enough of those growing up to a full adult size where they're going to start spawning. And then you've got to hope that they basically cave up and spawn and produce young. And keep in mind, a lot of those only produce like 15 or 16 fry at a time. So it's not a huge number. Yeah, I know people that, that breed those specialty plecos. I mean, even coming down to the cave design, right? Like right. The, the, the fish themselves can be very picky. 
maybe as hobbyists we're imposing you know kind of our own sense of pickiness on the caves but maybe. nonetheless like you have to play you may have to play around with tank arrangements and you know do you go pleco condo like we were right. talking about downstairs we were talking about or do yeah. we do individual caves do you do something that you know much more mimics nature with multi-leveled caves and a you know mud bank kind of setup to be more biotope like right and and you know is it a square cave is it a round cave is it a triangle cave i mean you have all of that and i think some of those have i mean i would guess in nature the caves are more round um, but a lot of people that are keeping those plecos are on flat or bare bottom tanks, right? In nature, the bottom would be mud or maybe sand. Um, uh, we caught plecos this summer. It's totally all rocky, but those were all, I believe, one form or other of ancestrous species, not necessarily L number. And so, yeah, do you mimic that? And... Can you mimic that and keep the fish alive? That's another question. I mean, you know, if we dumped mud in our tanks, we could not do that. So we would not keep the fish alive. Um, but, you know, and um, the triangle cave comes to mind is, is that designed so that their pectorials can hold themselves in? Did we design that or did nature design that? You know, I think we did. Yeah, somebody somebody wanted to design something that was different, right? right. Set yourself apart from the competitors totally. and be right. able to sell some product. Exactly. And you know, you just hope somebody's successful and they share that with other people, and you know, then you then you got a thing. Mm -hmm. But I guess you know when you're trying to breed a, a fish that uh, I believe what export is, um, it, it's either banned outright for like the zebra pleco or right. it's, or it's in, uh, very severe, right? The, yeah. the the number that you can actually export out of Brazil. I think it's outright banned, though, isn't it? It's it's. I think it's banned out of Colombia. It's banned out of Peru, and it's on that IC, IUCN IUCN yeah. list. So it has to come with paperwork, mm. and a lot of people they don't want to do the paperwork. So you're not going to get the fish. Yeah, and so I mean that that zebra pleco is definitely. I mean, it's you know it it, it is a very very popular right. you know and a, and a stunning and a striking fish. So. Uh, getting that to breed, it's, you know, some people put in, a, like yourself included, are right. putting in a lot of time and effort. Right, to grow uh, them out. Exactly. That's actually, the, the ones I have now is my third attempt. Third attempt with the same colony or third colony, third attempt? Third colony, third attempt. Wow. So my, and, and this might shock everybody, but my first colony was over 20 years ago. When they very first came in, at that time, you were getting them for $60 each, which seemed like a huge amount of money to pay yeah. for fish. And I had a group of, I think, a dozen or 14. Uh, I, think I, ended up, I think I started with 14 and ended up with a dozen. I lost a couple along the way. And this was fish room number two. Um, I had grown them up for two years and they were what I would consider by now, now day standard, they were almost ready to spawn. And we decided to dismantle fish room number two and move to Ohio for two years. So all the fish, all the tanks, everything got sold, um, except for the one tank that we took to Ohio. And so that was the end of my first attempt. Um, and I don't, I, 
lost touch with the person who bought them, so I never knew what happened with them. Um, the second time was four or five years ago. I got another group of a dozen, and they were, by my means, just about to spawning size. And I had a heater stick for a weekend when I was gone, and it stuck on, and I got, and it stuck on really bad. The tank was like... They like it warm, but probably not this no, warm. it was over 110 degrees. Oh, my God. I mean, and and they they were all just cooked. Um, and I was, and at that point, I was like, okay, I'm done with them. I, I can't do that again. Because that was, you know, over $1,000. And so this time around, how did you come around this colony? So... The third colony, I heard, well, I had read that they're going to go on this list. And I thought, okay, if once they're on the list, I'm never going to be able to try it again, probably, because I've, they're just so expensive. So I just decided, you know what, okay, I'm going to do it one more time, get 10, 10 more. I've only lost one of them now, and it was very early on. Uh, when I first got them, it just was a weak one. And so the other nine are still actively growing. Um, we saw that yeah. you know, maybe they're starting to cave up. I don't know. Uh, I still think they're probably six months off from being spawning size. So all I got to do is keep doing water changes and feeding them. <laughs> keep an eye on the heater. Better heater in that tank yeah. now. And, and literally, you know, I will touch that tank every day. Is it warm? Yeah, it's warm. It's the right temperature because it freaks me out. And people have said, you know, oh, you got to get a heater controller for that tank. Blah, blah, blah. You know, those can fail too. Um, anything. Heat is a hot spot for me with tanks <laughs> because anything dealing with heating a tank can and will fail. It's just a matter of when. Um, that's why we were talking earlier about, you know, your upcoming fish room. Are you going to heat the whole room? Mm -hmm. Because you can insulate the whole room, right? I had, I had, yep, yes. yes. And I, I am insulating that whole room. Right. And I, I had a, a heater that within the first week, it fried inside the tube. And it was one, exactly. of, the, one of the kinds with the glass exterior. So yep. you can actually see in there. You and can see it fried. Yeah, you yeah. saw yeah. that it fried yeah. within a week. Yeah. I've, I have piles of old heaters that don't work anymore. And I don't, I, I don't know why I keep them, but it's like piles, you know? Yeah, so I want to get, uh, um, there's, a, there's another member of uh, Seattle Aquarium Society that has done a very in-depth analysis on heaters. You yeah. know who I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm trying to get him yeah. on the show. I think, that would be fun. I think I'll have yeah. him on. Um, so yeah, just to, just to talk about his experiences yeah. with heaters and the experiments that he's well, run. He's, he's taken them all. I've given him broken heaters that, you know, he takes apart. So I can't figure out what is wrong with that one, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and uh, did you go? Did you go cobalt? I mean, we could throw anything out there. Did you put a cobalt in with the zebras, or I did have a cobalt in with them. The new batch, the the mm -hmm. latest zebras, and that is the one heater that failed. Oh no, that's a that's a pricey unit. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was one of the one fifties, and it was after because cobalt did have some problems with their heaters early on mm -hmm. with only one size. They have corrected that uh, long ago, and. Um, mine happened to be one of that size. When I called them, they said, no, it's not one of the affected ones, but they replaced it for free. Oh, good. Um, 
and I've used a lot of them in some of my other tanks. Uh, thing that I like is because I've used the matten filters. They're thin profile, so they slide behind the matten filter really easy. Um, so now there's an Italian heater in there. I can't really say the name of it, but because I don't know how. <laughs> oh, that's right. You did mention yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So it's in there now. It's been very, but you know, it totally freaked me out when the cobalt one went bad. And did it? It stuck. No, it it stuck off. Yeah, it stuck off, so I was lucky then. Yeah. Because my fish room will only go down to, a, the tanks will stop at about 75 degrees. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I was in that tank doing some water cleaning or some maintenance. I go, this feels cold. And I don't do, you know, those, I mean, I don't have thermometers on every tank. You know, it's all kind of by feel or by intuition. You've been doing this for long enough. Yeah, what's going on in there? I mean, I mean, you see the fish are acting weird. It's time to, okay what's wrong in there and um you know people have said well you have test kits there i said yeah but they probably haven't been used for in fact last time someone did i checked the the dates on the bottles they were all expired so you know that's how often i do the tests yeah and, and to your point of being in the tanks you know on a daily basis or on a regular basis uh with this new fish room that i'm building out you know going with a with an auto water change system you know making sure that i still have the due diligence to go in there mm -hmm. and make sure that i'm very involved with each of these tanks where i'm you know doing breeding projects or whatever it may be right right well you know even with the auto water change um that might be fine for say say you have 10 tanks on one of the water change things one one station whatever you want to call it what if nine out of those 10 tanks are getting enough water and the one that happens to be the most crowded tank is getting the same amount, but it's not enough. You have to be able to observe that that tank might need an extra water change. That's why I also added the individual tank thing downstairs because it's easy. Just, okay, I've auto water changed that, but I want to do, you know, another half hour or whatever on that one tank makes a big difference. Um, you know, and, and, were we talking earlier about how can we observe everything? You know, like you, you can't possibly observe everything in your fish room every day. We've talked a lot yeah. today. Yeah. So, <laughs> so you know, um, a lot of times we don't have time, especially since we're working outside of the house also, to carefully observe every tank every day. So you have to be able to hit the high spots every day. You know, okay. Uh, in my case, when the fry system is up and running, that needs attention every day. Um, whether it's water change, whether it's pulling fungus eggs, yep. fry that die, that has to be observed every day. Um, because the last thing you want in there is the whole tray of fry to die. Um, I also have to observe when I'm moving the fry from the fry trays to usually they go into a tin. Mm -hmm especially the first couple days uh, we were talking about those matten filters the flow well that flow can change whether the fry get food or not right so have to be really careful uh that time so you have to observe the things that need observing i mean there's some things that you don't have to that you know are taken care of but you know that based on experience mm -hmm. not based on 
guesswork. Yeah, it's like in manufacturing, right? Your your machines, you have a, a preventative maintenance schedule, and there are right. things that you do on a daily basis, and then right. there's things that you do on a weekly basis. Exactly. So for me, yeah. the dailies would be right now, you know, checking in on my my uh, breeding project fry that I have going on, right. right? Making sure that their water's clean, they're getting their, you know, 50 micron food, you know, right. making sure that they're fed constantly. And that's actually, you know, several times a day. Um, and then checking on Poe, the showed anti-puffer because he right. came with a fairly high price tag, right. you exactly. know, and then the other, the other main show tank, which I can kind of neglect a little bit because there's so much planted mass in there that I can be a little bit right careless. It's on, also bit. on an auto, auto feeder as well. Yeah. But to your point though, knowing what you need to hit every single day. Right. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's a, a brilliant piece of advice. Yeah. I mean, cause there will be, there'll be things that you need to do every day and there's things that, um, maybe I can do that once a week. Or once a month. Um, I mean, it's like the whole auto water change thing. You know, when I first set that up, I never knew when to change those canister, the, the filters. I was guessing. And then I thought, you know what? I should probably track that. You know, because, you know, I mean, first off, they're relatively inexpensive. And so um, somewhere I ended up with a chlorine test kit. Now, our water doesn't have a lot of chlorine in it, and we don't have chloramine, so we're really lucky that way. And so when the flow got really low, I tested for chlorine. I still didn't test chlorine, but at the same time, that sediment filter was blocking so much of the flow. I'm like, okay, maybe I have to do this every three months. And that, I mean, that's kind of what I've started on now is every three months, those got to be changed. Did you build the pressure gauge into it? Uh, initially, or is it a re- as a result of this observation? Um, I had the pressure gauge, and it was really easy just to screw it on there. And, and so let's let's no think. no it wasn't in there at first. That was just an extra outlet. And then I realized, you know, I could put that on there, and I could see if my pressure is dropping. Yeah. So so. Dean is such a genius that on his auto water chain system, to give more context, um, so coming out of the water supply, you've got the mixer, uh, it goes into a sediment block, and then it goes into a carbon block. Right. And then from there... Through the temperature, the, through, through, the he, thermometer well. Through the t- temperature thermometer well. So you, you really need to check out Dean's channel and in in some of the videos I'll link in the in the show notes because Dean is a, a DIY genius. Um so he has a, a an actual water pressure gauge that he's installed right. before it goes to his manifold system, right. which then feeds the tanks, right, right. Um, with on-off valves. And so from this observation, you're, you're saying that, you know, you noticed when that... The, when the pressure drops, all of a sudden the tanks aren't getting water changed. And and then you're going, oh, well, wait, what, what's wrong? What's plugged? And at first I thought, it's a problem with my hosing or something. But then I realized it's the pressure coming out of the filter is not enough. I don't think I've seen anybody in any videos of their their auto water chain system that employs a water pressure gauge coming out of a carbon block or it's anywhere in their system. Twelve dollars. Yeah, it's you genius. Know? And and it and it'll let you know. I mean, I could put one on the other side, you know, that just the the that's just for tank filling. Mm-hmm. But that's obvious when that filter is black or really dark brown you change it because it's just sediment i think the filter that plugs up the most is the five micron or the half micron carbon block Mm -hmm. Um, and what i did when i first put that pressure gauge on is i hooked it up with no cartridges in there 
to find out what my pressure was just baseline baseline yeah. yeah and i think it's somewhere i think it's around 65 and so i noticed that when it drops below 40 that's time to change it yeah but i've also found that i don't let it get that low if i change it every three months so that's where i came up with the quarterly basically so let's say to, to, to cap this interview off, Dean, and I definitely, I mean, there's so much more I want to talk to you about um, with, you know, various other species that you've bred, um, your travels to Peru, and maybe where else you have in the future planned, and how I can tag along, because I think it'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, a, a, as somebody that's going to be setting up a fish room or a breeding operation, I mean, what would be another piece of advice that you feel like from your experience, from the, from the lessons learned that you've had, um, what would that be? Well... These days, there's so much information out there, whether it's YouTube, other hobbyists, there's, there's so much stuff out there. Um, start with your space um, and don't do what I do. Try to put everything you can in that space. But, but figure out a way of using that space to the maximum that you can. Um, and that's not always necessarily the most tanks, but it might be setting those tanks up the most efficient way. For example, um, in my fish room where I have the 10, 10 gallon tanks racked endwise, that could be just four 20 longs in the same space. Um, I chose the 10, 10, gallon, 10, 10 gallon tanks because that's where the fry were gonna spend a lot of their life. And racked endwise, you know, 10s aren't so deep that you don't see them. Now a 20 long rack, racked endwise would be really hard to service. I also chose matten filters. We talked about this mm -hmm. a little bit more because then you can literally pull the decorations out and you have free range for the net. Just makes sense. Ironically, very few fish get behind the matten filters. I mean, I've seen some plecos, a few catfish once in a while, and you know, occasionally a couple other fish but very few actually are able to swim into that current. Um, so, you know, when you set, I mean, think think about your setup process, which is what you've been doing before you actually do it. Um, and, then, and then figure out your tank layout, figure out what you want to do with your fish room. Are you going to breed or do you just want to look at the, you know, pretty plants and pretty tanks? Do you want both? Maybe one wall's one and one wall's the other. Um, and, and, you know, so maybe you have show tanks and then the other thing that I always say is, and remember this, getting started is half done. Think about that. Oh, you know, I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't start, you're never going to get anywhere. And I didn't make that statement up. I learned it from someone else that told me, but you know, if you don't start, you're never going to get there. Yeah. yeah. No, very good. All right, Dean, we'll, uh, we're about to hit an hour here, so I hope everybody's enjoyed this, uh, this discussion with you about you know, your breeding that you've done in the past, your, your experience in the hobby, um, setting up fish rooms, running fish rooms. You and I, we've got a date with some Mexican food. Yeah. So yeah. we're going we're gonna to get down and chow. Um, and again, I definitely need to have you back on and, uh, well, we'll and bribe you with some more food. Awesome. So, Dean, thank you so much. I appreciate it, sir. You bet. Thanks. Thank you again for listening to the Aquarius Podcast. As always, get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.